Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 110, reading from Psalm 110, starting with verse 1, reading the entire psalm. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen, he shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. May God add his blessing to this, the reading and the hearing of his holy word. We discussed several weeks ago man's original revolt against the lawful and rightful sovereignty and authority of God over his life, Adam's fall. And we saw at that time briefly that the whole race was involved in Adam's fall. Adam was our federal head, our representative, and so we all sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression, to use the phraseology of the Shorter Catechism. And when man revolted, he became a part of the kingdom of darkness, the alien kingdom which Satan is the head of. And to this kingdom... The mass of mankind, ever since, have belonged. This is why Satan is called the prince of this world. That's why we are told in Scripture that the whole world lieth in the wicked one. That is why we are called, by nature, children of wrath, even as others. Because all men today, as fallen sons of fallen Adam, come into this world members of the kingdom of darkness, needing deliverance from it into the kingdom of light. God, in his mercy, has set up a kingdom of light. He was determined to deliver men from the consequence of their apostasy. And we recall that he announced this intention immediately after the fall as he spoke that first good news, that first gospel message of the seed of the woman who would come, this one who would come, and bruise the head of the serpent, uh, deal with the serpent. But it would cost him the bruising of his heel. He, too, would be wounded in the midst of the struggle. Meanwhile, at once, not waiting for the coming of this promised Redeemer, God moved to set up an antagonistic kingdom, antagonistic to the kingdom of darkness, his own kingdom, and it was to consist of men that he had chosen out of the world would call back to allegiance to himself through the strivings of his Holy Spirit with their spirit, this kingdom of God immediately inaugurated after the fall. Until the time of Abraham, between the fall of Adam and the time of Abraham, there really was no external 
organized visibility given to God's kingdom on earth. Uh, Before Abraham, it existed somewhat as family units. But with the call of Abraham, God established a covenant with Abraham that he would make of him a nation, a nation to be his own. And here God gives visibility to this kingdom that he has set up immediately after the fall. The purpose of giving it visibility, we can glean somewhat from Scripture, it was to preserve a people who knew the truth, to prevent the total eclipsing of the truth through the spread of idolatry, the worship of false gods. He planned to give more and more truth, to give revelation of himself through men that he would raise up prophets and to have their revelation written, and he would have a people to be the guardians and the uh, passers-on, the spreaders of this revelation. So he establishes the visibility of his kingdom at this point and makes them, begins to make them the recipients of supernatural revelation. Some 400-odd years later, or 600, when God has this same people, the descendants of Abraham, delivered from physical bondage in Egypt, he at this point, under Moses, establishes a theocracy with officers and official ceremonies. Through these, he would govern his nation and he would teach his nation and instruct them. Over and over, he would instruct them how he could be approached as he taught them sacrificial worship and so forth. Although his kingdom had existed from the beginning, yet prior to the actual appearing on the scene of the Redeemer, his first advent, everything was of a preparatory nature so that Scripture continually speaks of the coming of the Messiah for the purpose of establishing a kingdom, although the kingdom was already in existence. And this Messiah, this Redeemer who has been promised, is continually pictured as a king who will set up his kingdom when he comes. In Numbers, we read uh, the book uh, early there in the Pentateuch in Moses' writings of one who will come, a star out of Jacob and a scepter, and shall uh, rise out of Israel to rule. He shall be a scepter that shall rise out of God's people. In Second Samuel, God's statement to David as he makes a covenant with him that his throne shall be an everlasting throne and shall be established forever. This promised king to come from David's line and to have an everlasting kingdom to sit on David's throne in a sense. Isaiah then predicts that a virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a child who shall be God with us. Emmanuel, and then only several chapters later, Isaiah goes on to speak of this child, that unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there shall be no end, and he shall sit 
upon David's throne to order and to establish it. And on and on we pick up these prophecies about this coming king in the Old Testament. You remember that Daniel said that unto him would be given an everlasting kingdom over all peoples, as he pictures him drawing nigh to the Ancient of Days and receiving this kingdom. Micah even spoke of his birthplace, Thou, Bethlehem, are not the least among the thousands of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth he who is to be ruler of my people, whose goings forth have been from old, yea, from everlasting. Zechariah spoke of his triumphal entry, 700 years before it took place. Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem, shout, Thy king cometh unto thee, lowly, riding upon an ass, just, having salvation, a savior king who will come and be a humble one, and yet be just, a perfect king. Over and over we pick up these prophecies about this coming king. And the 110th Psalm, is one classic statement about his kingship in the Old Testament. As you approach this psalm, you find, first of all, the nature of the king is brought before us. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at thy right hand, at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The author of this psalm, we're told, is David. And Christ, a thousand years later, calls David the author of this this psalm, and he says that David wrote it when he was in spirit, when he was under the control of God's spirit, which shows us Jesus Christ's attitude toward the inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures. As far as he was concerned, the men who wrote the Old Testament were in spirit, were under the guidance of God's mighty spirit so that it was the word of God that they wrote. The address, there's the author David, the address, notice who is addressing who. The Lord said unto my Lord, says David. The Lord, Jehovah, is the word, or Yahweh. Jehovah said unto my Lord, and a different Hebrew word is employed here, Adonai. Sit thou on my right hand, until thine enemies are made thy footstool. When did the Lord say this to David's Lord? Here we have what the theologians call the council of peace, taken from a scriptural phrase, that agreement that the parties of the Godhead, if you can fathom it, that the parties of the Godhead God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, entered into before the world was ever founded, that covenant that God the Son promised that he would come and take upon himself the guilt of man. God the Father promised that he would do certain things when the Son did this. God the Holy Spirit had his part in it. They agree together what they will do in connection with the redemption of man. And one aspect of this agreement between them is that God the Father decrees and promises the Son that when you have come, then I will see to it that you share fully in my dominion, you will sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. You will be victorious. There's the address, and the application is made by Christ to himself in the New Testament.
as he asked his enemies, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they very quickly say what every schoolboy of the Jewish nation knew. They say, Why, Christ, Christ is to be David's son. The Messiah, the promised Redeemer, is to be David's son. And then Jesus says, How then can David call him Lord? And quotes this psalm. If he's to be David's son, how can he be David's Lord? And it says they could not answer him. Because as they had read the Old Testament, the deity of this promised king was a closed book. And we can understand how it would be. You see, the Jew had a real concept over against all the other peoples of the world who worshipped idols. The Jew had a real concept of God. He knew the truth about God that there was only one God, the living and true God, who controlled all, who created all, who governed all, and he could not fathom this creator becoming a man. And yet that's what Jesus Christ claimed to be, fully man, fully God. I and my Father are one. He that has seen me has seen the Father. This fantastic application to himself, and we see the fulfillment of it, In him was the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and yet the true Son of Man, the Son of David, who would come. There's the nature of the king, and the nature of his kingdom is then brought before us as we are told that he will sit at God's right hand, which is to say he will share in God's reign over his universe. This is what the theologians call the kingdom of Christ's power, his domain over the universe. As we go through here, we will find that Christ has different aspects of kingship. When the Holy Roman Empire was in existence, the king of Germany was also the king of the Holy Roman Empire. He had two aspects of his kingship. One was over his own nation there, and one was over this entire empire. And so it is with Jesus Christ. And the aspect of Christ's kingship that is brought before us here in this sharing of his Father's throne is his dominion over the entire universe. God is king of the universe. He decreed that the Messiah would share in his dominion over the universe. Sit thou at my right hand. Participate in my rule over the universe. And this does not imply inactivity. It's not, you sit here and I will go out, meanwhile, while you do nothing and make your enemies your servants. Oh, no. Share in my power and through that power that I will invest you with, rule over your enemies and bring them into subjugation. And so it is that Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, announced to his disciples as he told them of the warfare they would be involved in and told them to go into all the world, he told them of the investiture with power that was his now. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and let's bring the whole thing into subjugation. Let's go and advance my kingdom. We see here from Christ's statement the time of Christ's entrance upon this aspect of his kingship. 
his dominion over the universe, while Christ received the promise of this power in the councils of eternity, he was actually formally invested with this kingship over the universe in connection with his resurrection and ascension, his exaltation to God's right hand. In the first chapter of Ephesians, the 20th verse, Paul makes this statement in connection with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. He says that the power that God demonstrated in uh, his resurrection, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Here we have a statement of his entrance into this universal dominion in connection with his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation to God's right hand. You notice the extent of that reign? It's over all principality and power and dominion and every name that is named in this world and that which is to come. We read in 1 Corinthians that the only thing that is accepted as far as the extent of his reign is concerned is him who did put all things under him. In other words, God the Father is the only one that is not under the dominion, this universal dominion of Jesus Christ. You note the enemies to this dominion, to this reign. He says that in verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. The nature of these enemies is twofold. First, there are physical enemies, and second, there are spiritual enemies. There's a relation between the two. The physical enemies, such as those who militated against and physically crucified Jesus Christ when he was here and have been doing the same to his people ever since. The physical enemies, whether it be in the form of an individual or a government, united opposition or whatever, the type of opposition and persecution that it takes in Russia or Red China, or whether it be the more subtle type that it takes right here in our own community, in our own nation. The physical enemies of God's people. And behind this, the spiritual enemies. The spiritual enemies are sin and Satan and death. Satan, we've already seen the conflict between uh, Christ and Satan and these two kingdoms as they, con- as they clash and as Christ is continually engaged in the operation of spoiling Satan's kingdom and delivering men from his kingdom now. Sin, this spiritual enemy of God's people, the guilt of God's people, the guilt of the people that God the Father has given to Christ the Son, and their depravity their tendency toward sin. Justice requires that they be punished, that they be punished eternally. As Milton expressed it, uh, he has Satan crying out to God, and we read in Scripture that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and accuses them day and night before the throne of God. Satan accuses along this line as he says to God, about the sinner, die he or justice must. What else can righteous ruler do? 
God, if you are righteous, you must punish the sinner. You have no right to forgive him and to take him to your heaven. And that's an enemy of Christ's people. It must be dealt with. And then death, which is the result of sin, the first death, the second death, physical death, spiritual death, must be dealt with. And yet you notice the ineffectiveness of these things as we read that the decree is that he shall rule in the midst of his enemies, that these enemies shall not be effective in their opposition, and in time they will all be placed under his feet. They will all be brought into subjugation and all opposition overthrown. The endurance of this reign, he shall reign until all of his enemies have been brought into subjugation. The last enemy to be put down, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, is death, physical death, the last enemy to be put down. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, For since by man came death, namely Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. This is the destruction of physical death for his people. For as in Adam all die, all are in Adam, and so all are dead in Adam. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Not all are in Christ, but all in Christ shall be made alive, and they shall be made alive not only spiritually, but one day bless God physically when their physical bodies are restored to life, now glorious bodies, immortal bodies. When shall this be? Every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he's been raised. Afterward, they that are Christ, and they only, at his coming. Then cometh the end. He shall come, then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. Here's the end of his universal dominion. At this point, then he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he hath put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And that's described a little further on in the 54th verse. When this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. We read in connection with the coming of Jesus Christ that he shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. He's going to shout, Get up! And the dead in Christ shall rise in new, glorious, immortal bodies. And then Christ shall turn to his Father the last enemy of his people and himself having been put down, Satan having been overthrown, all of Satan's forces having been overthrown, and shall deliver up the kingdom to his father. Isn't that a wonderful, glorious statement of what awaits the people of God? Not only do we have his universal dominion spoken of here, his universal kingship, but we have his dominion over his people, his own people. As we read in verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Here's the second aspect of his kingship, which we could call his kingdom of grace. The first, his kingdom of power. Now his kingdom of grace. It was mentioned in that first chapter of Ephesians when we read that not only 
had he been given this universal sovereignty over all principality and power and every name to his name, but he had also been made head of his church, his body. Here's the second aspect of his kingship. And in this respect, he began to function as king over his people immediately after the fall. Immediately after the fall, he began to function in that capacity, and so he is spoken of as ruling from the midst of Zion in Old Testament times. And yet, uh, this kingship entered a new phase when he came at his first advent, when he died, when he rose, when he ascended to God's right hand, and when he poured out his spirit without measure, when he sent his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in a new and more powerful way, that aspect of kingship entered a new phase. This is, in its nature, is a spiritual reign. It's not like the kingdoms of this world, and, and that's why the crusade was such a tragedy. This is not a kingdom where his servants fight with sword and shield. Rather, this is a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom comprised of those hearts that have been submitted to him as king. You enter the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ becomes your king, and then the kingdom is in the midst of you. The kingdom is within when Christ is your king. Notice the reference to willingness. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Thy people are free will offerings, is a better translation. They freely offer themselves. The men who enter Christ's kingdom, they come freely of their own accord, and they commit their wills to Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. He becomes their king. But when do they do this? What moves a man who by nature is a rebel to God to make a willing commitment of his life to Jesus Christ as king? What moves a man to do that? He says, they will be willing in the day of thy power. In the day when Jesus Christ exerts that powerful call that we speak of as an effectual call, when his gospel sounds and he accompanies that gospel with his own inward call, men willingly commit their lives to him. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew, says the songwriter, he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not so much that I on thee laid hold as thou, dear, dear Lord, on me. Notice not only is there willingness there, free offering of their self to Christ, but their holiness. This implies cleansing from guilt. How would he deal with that great enemy of their sin, their guilt? We know how. It's spoken of in the next verse. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Here's another part of this great decree spoken by the Father of the Son. The Lord hath sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. Here we have a priest king. Not only would he rule over his people, but he would make atonement for the sins of his people. He would be a priest. And the offering this priest would offer would be himself, both priest and sacrifice. He would come, live out a life of perfect obedience, and then offer himself in their stead for their guilt. He who one day would bear the scepter over the entire universe, at that time bore the burden of all men's guilt. 
and paid for it in full and did his finished work on the cross. It not only implies atonement, cleansing from guilt by his death for our sins, but it implies changing. The beauties of holiness are those beautiful fruits that Jesus Christ produces in the life that has been committed to him. The fruit of the Spirit that now dwells within. The fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, self-control. This is the beauty of holiness because when Jesus Christ becomes king of a heart, he changes that heart. And it now begins to manifest this type of fruit. And so the evidence of whether or not a man is in the kingdom of God is whether or not he's holy. And you cannot have Jesus Christ as your king and live in sin as to try to mix oil and water. He that says that he knows him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. He is the one who is in my kingdom, says Jesus Christ. How do you enter his kingdom? Trust in him as your priest and sacrifice. Submission to him as your Lord and master. And there is no other way. And they alone are in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The perpetualness of this kingdom is spoken of as he speaks of the dew of youth, uh, J.A. Alexander says that the comparison with the dew engendered afresh daily from the womb of the morning speaks of the perpetualness of this kingdom. This kingdom of Jesus Christ shall never end, but it will change. It will not end, but it will change. Because there will be a consummation, as we've already seen, of this kingdom, and will be ushered in the kingdom of glory. The consummation is spoken of here when we find this Lord suddenly leaving the throne of his power and stepping onto the battlefield to vanquish his enemies. Verse 5, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. There is a day of mercy. There is a day of wrath. The day will come when Jesus Christ shall step from the throne of his glory and shall enter the battlefield permanently, finally against his enemies and shall vanish them. We read of it over and over in the New Testament. The day when in mighty his mighty angels in flaming fire shall take vengeance on those that know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then will be ushered in the kingdom of glory when all of his own shall be with him in a kingdom from which every vestige of sin has been banished, nothing that defiled allowed to enter, a new heavens, a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Beloved, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? The answer to that question has something to do with whether or not you're in his kingdom. And if you long since have said, I know who Jesus Christ is, he was exactly who he claimed to be, God and man, that priest who died for my sins, and I have committed my life to him, then, beloved, what need ye fear? Jesus Christ reigns over the entire universe and you are one of his people. And the one kingdom is subservient to the other. His reign over the universe is subservient to his reign over his people. He reigns the universe in order to bless his people. 
And what need you or I to fear? I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twine those ties which naught can sever, for I am his, and he is mine, forever and forever. Oh, what an amazing thing, that the sovereign of the universe is my king. If my earthly father were suddenly invested with all the power in the universe and reigned over everything, would I ever fear again? No, because he was my earthly father, and I know of my relation to him. But how much better that my heavenly father and Christ my king is in that position. And for those who have not settled their relationship to Jesus Christ, they are still in rebellion, they are still in that alien kingdom to his, either from a refusal to believe his claims and take him as their savior by faith, or from a refusal to submit their wills in honest yieldedness to his sovereignty over their lives. Do you not realize the alternatives that face you? Either you sit with him on his throne in glory, or you have his foot upon your neck in defeat. How can you resist such a sovereign? And do you not know that it calls on you to make an act of commitment of your will to him freely? From heaven his eyes downward bent, still glancing to and fro, where'er in this wide wilderness there roams a child of woe. And as the rebel chooses wrath, God wails his hapless lot, deep breathing from the heart of love, I would, but ye would not. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks? I would, but ye would not. Beloved, if you've never done real business with Jesus Christ as sovereign, don't kid yourself about your relation to him. There is no way to have him as savior and not have him as king. And if he is your king, it's bound to make a change. I challenge you and urge you and beg you today to come and let's talk and yield your life to him and experience that freedom which he brings.